Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about multiple myeloma and other hematologic conditions with Dr. Terry Parker. Dr. Parker is an assistant professor of medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Terry, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about what you do. My specialty focuses on plasma cell neoplasms or plasma cell disorders, the most common of which is multiple myeloma, which is considered to be a hematological malignancy. So uh, let's back up a little bit. What exactly is a plasma cell? Yeah, so a plasma cell is a type of white blood cell that is found in the bone marrow. It's derived from a B lymphocyte, which is another type of white blood cell, again, found in the bone marrow. And so tell us about multiple myeloma and what exactly it is. I mean, when we think about cancers of white blood cells, oftentimes we're thinking about leukemias, lymphomas. Is multiple myeloma a type of that? Is it different? Tell us more. So as stated, uh, multiple myeloma is considered to be a hematological malignancy. And so that term encompasses leukemias, lymphomas, and plasma cell neoplasms, of which multiple myeloma is one. So in multiple myeloma, the abnormal cell is a plasma cell. And these plasma cells uh, proliferate or increase in number in the bone marrow. It's really not known what causes the plasma cells to proliferate in the majority of individuals. And it's this proliferation that is defined as multiple myeloma. And so how do we know, I mean, blood cells, uh, uh, cancers in general are pretty rare, isn't it? Yeah. So if you look at multiple myeloma, it's currently the 14th most common cancer in the United States, and it represents roughly 1.8% of all new cancers diagnosed. Uh, So not as common as some of our solid tumors that we see. And where does it rank relative to leukemia and lymphoma? Yeah. And so there's some uh, leukemias that are more common, uh, some that are rarer. So it's probably uh, somewhere in the middle, um, not to be too specific. Yeah. Okay. Well, who who gets these um, blood cell cancers, these hematologic malignancies? Are there certain risk factors that put people at risk for developing them? Yeah. So as I stated previously for multiple myeloma, for most people, we don't really know why they develop the disease. However, there are some factors that may increase the risk of developing myeloma. One is age. So the majority of people are over the age of 50 at diagnosis, with the current median age of diagnosis here in the United States being 69. Another risk factor is a precursor condition known as monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or uh, an abbreviation for it is MGUS. So tell us more about that. MGUS is considered to be a precursor condition, and the individuals are asymptomatic, and it's usually discovered um, when blood work is done for another complaint. Sometimes it can be that a primary care physician notices that there's an increase in protein in a simple serum chemistry, so that's a blood test that's done for another reason. 
Sometimes this laboratory work is done for evaluation of other problems, such as osteoporosis or neuropathies in some individuals. And then they get referred to a hematologist and have further evaluation that then reveals this precursor state. And so those are, I mean, kind of pretty general um, risk factors in terms of age and MGUS for multiple myeloma. Are there risk factors for lymphoma and leukemia as well? Um, there are some. Um, for leukemias, um, in general, age again plays a factor as we do tend to see certain leukemias in older individuals. Um, it again depends on the type of leukemia as there are different types, acute and chronic, lymphoid versus myeloid. Other potential um, risks can include environmental exposures. So there have been studies looking at the link between radiation in addition to certain chemical exposures such as pesticides or Agent Orange. Hmm. And so those increase your risk of uh, leukemias and lymphomas, but not of multiple myeloma. Is that right? No, in myeloma as well, there have been studies uh, specifically looking at Agent Orange and pesticides as well as radiation. So, you know, pesticides is something that I think a lot of people kind of worry about. And, you know, as we're heading into the fall, you know, people are still using pesticides as they're trying to, you know, tend their lawn and do their gardening, get get everything ready for uh, the winter. Should people really be concerned about pesticides or are there particular pesticides that they should watch out for, others that might be safer? Um, that's a good question, and I don't have a specific answer for you. Um, a lot of these are, you know, looked at, and some of the common uh, pesticides that people may use may have warnings on them. Most of the time, people are usually safe because they're using the regular household uh, pesticides or chemicals, if you will, in a ventilated outdoor space and really have minimal exposure. All right. So, I mean, I think that that's kind of good information to get across just because, you know, people can sometimes worry about these things, but, you know, it may be that it's really not as toxic as some people may think unless you're really um, kind of uh, in contact with them in, in large quantities. So now that we've kind of talked about the risk factors, how do people present um, with these hematologic malignancies? I mean, for a solid tumor uh uh, tumors, uh, we we often can find a lump or we'll have some bleeding or we'll have some pain. Um, blood cells don't generally cause those things, do they? Yeah. So it really kind of depends. Um, so if we kind of walk through each thing individually. So for patients who have leukemia, a lot of times they will present with abnormal blood counts. By that, I mean an abnormal white blood cell count, hemoglobin, or red cells, or platelets, which are the cell that helps prevent you from bleeding or clots blood. So sometimes an individual will be diagnosed when they have a blood count done for another reason, and it's picked up because there's an abnormality. Sometimes people present because these abnormalities lead to other symptoms. For example, if there's an alteration in a white blood cell count, specifically a lower white blood cell count, someone may develop more frequent or recurrent infections. If the red cells or hemoglobin is low, that's also known as anemia, and patients can be, become more tired or fatigued. And if their platelet count is reduced, they can present with bleeding or easy bruising. So sometimes these people present because they have other symptoms 
Um, and then it's revealed that these symptoms are because of a low blood count. For individuals who have lymphomas, sometimes they will present with an enlarged lymph node. And so in that case, they may have a lump or bump, if you will, that uh, causes them to present to medical attention. And then for multiple myeloma, which is what I specifically focus in, sometimes people will not have any symptoms. And again, it's picked up because blood work is done for another reason, like an elevated total protein on a serum chemistry, which is a type of blood test. Other symptoms that individuals could have could again be anemia if the plasma cells increase in the bone marrow to the point where they start crowding out the normal cells. Plasma cells also produce high amounts of protein that can be seen in the blood that are cleared through the kidneys and could lead to renal dysfunction or failure in severe cases if it has not been recognized. And plasma cells also accumulate in the bone that can lead to weakness of the bone and hence pain or fractures. Hmm. And so it, it sounds like a lot of these are really picked up on basic blood tests that you have when you go to your doctor. So how frequently should you be having routine blood tests done, especially if these things don't generally present with a lot of symptoms? Yeah. So, you know, there is currently no screening that's recommended for um, multiple myeloma or UMGUS, which is the precursor condition. So typically we tell patients to follow the guidance from their primary care physician, meaning their blood work is really depends on other medical problems. Um, you know, for example, if someone has a heart condition, diabetes, or another medical issue, they're probably going to have blood work done more frequently because of monitoring of that condition and or the medications that are needed. Yeah. So I, I kind of wonder though, right? Um, when you talk about these conditions being found in older patients, older patients also being the ones who are more likely to have other comorbidities that um, will require routine blood tests. Um, I wonder how many people who are younger might be walking around completely asymptomatic, but actually harboring one of these um, hematologic malignancies that have never been picked up simply because they've never had a blood test. Is that possible? Or do these things actually then progress to the point of being symptomatic? Yeah. So again, when you talk about hematologic malignancies, that's a very um, broad um, topic. And so everyone is very individualized, right? And so if we look at multiple myeloma, for individuals who have a precursor condition, which is UMGAS, they can be asymptomatic for years. Um, and many patients can live with MGUS and it never progresses. Um, for individuals who have a low-risk monoclonal gammopathy if it undetermined significance or MGAS, we tell them that that risk of progression is roughly 1% per year. Okay, so there's a large majority of people who will never progress. If someone has multiple myeloma and it's left untreated, it will progress to the point where they may develop symptoms. Again, what was discussed being the anemia leading to fatigue, potential kidney damage, or bone damage. So those patients will progress and become symptomatic at some point. It's difficult to predict that rate of progression. And so, and, and what about what about for lymphomas and leukemias? Are are those also um, ones that will progress to symptoms, or is it possible for them to be pretty asymptomatic until they actually end up having a test that that diagnoses it? 
Yeah. So for your acute leukemias and even the majority of your chronic leukemias, they will often progress, again, varying rates of progression to the point where people will become symptomatic. Similarly, if someone had an aggressive lymphoma or a high-grade lymphoma, they would progress to the point of symptoms. It is possible for individuals who have a indolent or a slowly progressing lymphoma that they may have had it for several years before the point of progression. And so the the other question that I had was, you know, you, you talk about one of the things that's often a trigger to finding diagnosis of these um these conditions as being anemia. And and for example, in multiple myeloma, where the plasma cells kind of crowd out other cells, and so the red blood cell count goes down. Um, two questions. First question is, uh, oftentimes anemia, especially in older people, can be associated with other things, right? GI bleeds, um, you know, losing blood from other sources, iron deficiency anemia, how do you really tell that this is uh, from something like multiple myeloma versus versus other things? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, as you mentioned, people who are older and even younger individuals can have anemia for a variety of reasons. So typically, we will work up and do a basic anemia evaluation, which includes looking like at things like iron deficiency, other nutritional deficiencies, vitamin B12 and folic acid to make we, sure we exclude com, kind of the most common and treatable um, reasons for anemia first. And then when we really don't have a source, then we kind of go on to kind of that next level of evaluation that does include hematological disorders. Well, we're going to need to take a short break for a medical minute. But when we get back, we'll learn more about how to diagnose and treat uh, these hematologic conditions with my guest, Dr. Terry Parker. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment, as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Terry Parker. We're talking about hematologic malignancies and particularly Dr. Parker's specialty of multiple myeloma. Now, right before the break, uh, Terry, you were saying that a lot of people are diagnosed with multiple myeloma when anemia is found on a routine blood test. And that, you know, the first step is oftentimes to rule out the things that are common, common things being common, um, rule out iron deficiency, anemia and B12 and folic acid and all of those good things. But ultimately, if all of those things are ruled out, 
How then does the diagnosis proceed for people actually to be found to have multiple myeloma? And so the first step is actually additional blood and urine studies. So we will do a battery of tests, um, specifically tests that are called a serum protein electrophoresis, which is a blood test that looks to see if there's an increase in abnormal or monoclonal protein in the blood. We do a similar test in the urine. We will test other specific things called an immunofixation electrophoresis, quantitative immunoglobulins, and serum-free light chains. And we put together all of these blood tests and urine studies to determine if there is a monoclonal protein present, which is a protein that's being secreted by an abnormal plasma cell. And so if you find that, um, then that means that people have multiple myeloma? Not necessarily. And so as mentioned earlier, we can see a monoclonal protein in precursor conditions. And so we take a look at the whole picture. So we look at the amount of monoclonal protein. If the patient has any other systemic symptoms, such as anemia, renal, kidney insufficiency, or bone pain, And then we determine if this is more consistent with what we would call a monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance that would be considered low risk that we would just have to observe, or if there were a significant amount of protein or other symptoms that would make us go one step further, which would be a bone marrow biopsy, which is the definitive way to diagnose multiple myeloma. Okay. And so when somebody has a bone marrow biopsy, what exactly is the tell that you have multiple myeloma? Yeah, so the bone marrow biopsy itself tells us what is the actual percentage of abnormal plasma cells. So we're looking for these abnormal or monoclonal plasma cells, so kind of one type of plasma cell, and they need to be over 10% in the bone marrow. So that's what we're looking for. And that is diagnostic of multiple myeloma. And then if you find that, how is what's the next step? Is there staging or do you go straight to treatment? How does that work? Yeah. So then we have to make another determination. So we have what we call smoldering multiple myeloma or asymptomatic, if you will, or symptomatic. And so individuals who have smoldering multiple myeloma meet that strict cutoff of 10% involvement in their bone marrow, but are really otherwise asymptomatic, meaning they don't have anemia, they have preserved kidney function, their calcium levels within normal range, they don't have any bone pains or what we call lytic lesions or holes in their bones. And so these people we really observe, but they have a higher risk of progression to symptomatic multiple myeloma that would need treatment. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So how do these people with smoldering multiple myeloma present? If they don't have anemia, they don't have any abnormal kidney function, how how do you see them? Yeah. So a lot of times these individuals are referred because they had a blood test done. Um, that was a what we call a comprehensive metabolic panel that included a total protein. And they were noted to have a total protein that was elevated. And so their primary care physician picked up that the total protein was high and then sent them for further evaluation for a issue such as a monoclonal protein. So that's one way we often will see these individuals. 
Another is that monoclonal gammopathies and multiple myeloma can be associated with other medical problems. For example, a serum protein electrophoresis, which is the blood test that we do as part of the evaluation for myeloma, is often done in evaluation for secondary causes for osteoporosis. So sometimes uh, patients will have it done as a workup if they have osteoporosis um, at a younger age or it's unexpected. We also can see neuropathy, so that's kind of numbness and tingling in the extremities in patients who have gammopathies as well. And so sometimes a neurologist, as part of a workup for other reasons for a patient to have a peripheral neuropathy, will send these studies. So that's how a lot of these patients present to us if they don't have any other organ um, damage. So so these people with smoldering monoclonal um, multiple myeloma still could have symptoms, right? They could still have this peripheral neuropathy or they could still have osteoporosis, but they just can't have the other things that you mentioned, right? The anemia, the kidney function, uh, the lytic lesions of the bone. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. So they can't really have what we call this end organ damage. Um, you know, our classification between smoldering myeloma and myeloma has changed over the years. And we now also have a set of criteria that we call myeloma-defining events, which don't have to be organ damage, but just a kind of a significant amount of disease burden. And we will treat those individuals as myeloma, even if they don't have any of the other classic symptoms you just mentioned. So really, we're looking for a significant involvement of the bone marrow. Um, We classify that as over 60% involvement. Um, or a very significant serum-free light chain burden. And for those individuals, we will treat them as multiple myeloma, even if they don't have those classic end-organ damage that we mentioned. And so what does treatment entail? Yeah, so treatment for a newly diagnosed patient is a combination of drugs, um, typically what you would consider chemotherapy. So we often refer to it as frontline or induction chemotherapy as we're trying to um, induce a response. The treatment typically consists of a combination of three or four drugs. And the determination of how many drugs and which drugs are often based on a few different patient-specific factors in addition to disease-specific factors. And so, you know, when we talk about patient-specific factors, we really look at a patient and see, you know, ask the question is, how well do we think this individual could tolerate the treatment? Okay, so what is their fitness? Um, You know, we don't necessarily look at age, but kind of the overall person. What are their other medical problems, their comorbidities? What medications are they taking? Um, you know, do they have heart dysfunction at baseline? They do, they already have a neuropathy that's pretty severe. And then we look at the myeloma uh, itself, meaning for every bone marrow biopsy that we do, we also send a study called cytogenetics. So cytogenetics is the study of chromosomes within that plasma cell. So we're really looking to see if there's any rearrangements, additions, deletions, breaks. And by utilizing this cytogenetic testing, we determine if someone's considered high risk or standard risk, and that influences which treatment we give. And so what is the difference between a high risk and a standard risk Uh, patient in terms of treatment? I mean, is it more drugs? Is it more duration? Is it more toxic? 
Yeah, so it's not necessarily more drugs. Um, fortunately, in multiple myeloma, most of our drugs are very targeted to the plasma cell, um, but it may just be a different type of drug. Okay, so it may consist of four drugs versus a three drug regimen. Um, you know, there's still a lot of research being done to see what is truly the best regimen for high risk um, individuals. And there's a lot of different opinions out there, but it's usually going to be a four or three drug regimen with potentially one difference in one of the medications. And so you know, as we think about multiple myeloma and how you treat it, it seems to me that, you know, part of this has to do with how advanced the myeloma is in terms of how much of the bone marrow is actually involved, um, whether there's end organ damage, how fit the patient is, and so on. All of which makes me wonder about you know, how important it is to get to a doctor as soon as you have those symptoms, how important it is to um, to get diagnosed early versus late. I mean, certainly that's something we talk about in a lot of cancers, but it sounds like in multiple myeloma, there's really no real screening tests, no recommendations for annual blood work, for example. So does that really play a role or does it not matter as much? Yeah. So in multiple myeloma, as in a lot of the hematological malignancies, you know, we don't stage it as we do our solid tumor, um, as, excuse me, as we do solid tumors. And we don't talk about metastasis. And so really the amount of bone marrow involvement doesn't play a role in what we decide to do for upfront treatment. So our staging is really based on kind of blood work. And we'll often treat someone who is, say, a stage one versus a stage three very similarly because we have very effective drugs in the first line setting. But obviously, you would want to seek medical attention if you had any symptoms because, say, you present with kidney dysfunction, um, renal failure, that does limit some of the treatments that we could give up front. And obviously, if you start to have bone pain, you would want to seek medical attention because you wouldn't want to end up with a pathological fracture. So we do encourage people, if they have any symptoms, to really seek medical attention. Um, and as you know, the sooner you are diagnosed, the potentially more treatment options uh, you have and the better shape you will be in to tolerate treatment. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned, which I think is something that it's important that we pick up on, is that you said that the treatments now are very effective. So tell us a little bit about prognosis of patients who are treated with multiple myeloma. Yeah. So fortunately, we um, have keep moving our overall uh, survival and the percent surviving at five years um, each year, thanks to the development of newer treatments. And so it used to be you know, several years ago, say in 2005, if we were giving this talk, we would talk about an overall survival of two to five years. That has actually gotten moved out. And a lot of times we give ranges, right? Um, so more recently we said, okay, five to 10 years. And we're now even talking about potentially moving that to 10 to 15 years. If you look at the most recent um, data in the United States regarding the percent of patients that are alive at five years, it's about uh, just over 55%. So very encouraging. That, that's really great. And I guess that leads me to my next question, which is 
What are the exciting advances that uh, are going on in terms of multiple myeloma research now? How are you and others trying to move the ball even further down the field? Yeah, that's a great question. There is so much exciting research being done here at Yale and within the field of multiple myeloma and really at all kind of stages. So right now, we often will refer to multiple myeloma as a cancer that is treatable but not curable. So we're currently looking at ways to improve that frontline therapy, maintenance therapy, and individuals who have relapsed refractory. So kind of the most exciting things are probably the development of CAR-T, which recently gained FDA approval, in addition to looking at the bispecific um, antibodies, which are currently in clinical trial. Dr. Terry Parker is an assistant professor of medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.